This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of June 15th, 2015, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 230 of Defender Radio. Uncomfortable discussions come up in the world of animal advocacy, just like they do in any other field. But when we have our awkward conversations, there are often lives on the line. This week, we're going to look at two such topics, dogs in hot cars and seal penises. Dogs die every summer from coast to coast because they're left in hot vehicles on warm days. We'll be joined by Dr. Amelia Gordon of the BC SPCA, who will help us understand the physiological changes dogs undergo when left in hot cars, as well as what dog lovers should know about cooling off overheated pups. Then we'll connect with Cheryl Fink of the International Fund for Animal Welfare to talk seal penises. It's no prank, and you may have a lot of explaining to do to those around you when they see you switch from laughing to crying and back again following this interview. Let's get started. Facebook, Twitter, and other social media sites overflow with reminders to not leave dogs in hot cars. SPCAs and humane societies spend money on advertisements and signage to remind people to not leave dogs in hot cars. Yet every year, more of our furry friends die or become seriously ill. Dr. Amelia Gordon of the BC SPCA took time out of her busy schedule recently to help us understand why dogs so quickly become ill, how we can safely cool them down, and how we can talk to our friends and family about the dangers of a hot car for dogs. Can you tell us, uh, I guess, a bit about the physiology of a dog when it comes to being in a hot car? Because that might be the biggest thing that's misunderstood before we get into all of the other aspects of these problems. So what happens to a dog when they're left in a hot car? Yeah, so what happens to a dog is that, first of all, dogs are not able to cool themselves as efficiently as we can. We have lots of ways to cool ourselves, but they basically only are able to pant and drool, so they, they can't really sweat. And so what happens is that when a dog's in a hot car and can't get out, their body starts to initiate cooling mechanisms. And so for them, it's panting and, and maybe some drooling, and their blood vessels start to dilate to try to get rid of some heat. And when that happens and they stay in the hot car, their blood pressure goes down because their vessels dilate, so the heart has to work harder, and the blood starts to kind of pool in, in the organs, and it can't really get back to the heart to be pumped through the body. So then the blood pressure starts to drop. At that point, when the blood pressure starts to drop, there's also heat damage that's going on in the organs. So there's also some abnormal blood clotting that starts to occur as blood is pooling. And all of those things basically damage the internal organs. So they tend to damage organs like the intestines. Um, the brain starts to swell as blood clots form. And what you start to see if you have ever been unfortunate enough to observe this is um, actual physical symptoms. So what, what will happen to the dog is that the dog will often start having severe nausea and cramping, and then they'll have very severe bloody diarrhea and bloody vomiting. They'll start to become very agitated and have seizures because of the effects on the brain. And there's also other organ damage occurring at that time, like kidney and liver damage. 
And then, unfortunately, if the dog is still in the hot car and is not taken out and treated, basically they experience irreversible brain damage and organ failure, and eventually they, they die. And if the car is very, very hot, that can actually occur. That whole process can start after only about five to ten minutes, and death can occur rather quickly. Well, and that's to me what's really incredible i mean i read all kinds of gruesome horror and thriller novels and you read about you know radiation poisoning and it takes a month but it's the exact same symptoms how is it that this can happen just so rapidly and it and it really is within half an hour even 20 minutes uh, a dog can die or be uh, injured i guess uh, to the point of no recovery yeah, yeah. So it, it happens because dogs just fundamentally, they, they can't dissipate heat as well as you can. And if a human was, was in a car, there's actually a sort of horrifying YouTube video of a human trying to sort of mimic these conditions and what happens to them. Um, if a human is in a car, obviously they start to experience some of the same things, but unfortunately dogs experience them faster. It also depends on the dog's breed and weight and their history and how excite, excited or anxious they are. So sometimes we see dogs who perhaps they get very anxious when they're left alone, and that's coupled with being alone in a hot car. And if the dog is already panting and sort of freaking out in the car, or it's it's springtime, it's early, no one is used to the heat yet, um, or it's an old dog, an overweight dog, or like a, a bulldog or a dog with a sort of a short face, those dogs especially really have trouble. So there are a lot of different things that can contribute to it happening quickly, but certainly it, it can happen very fast. It can also happen more slowly if the car is not as hot to start out and then it heats up. So sometimes there's quite a bit of suffering as it can be prolonged, but regardless of how quickly it happens, it's, it's a very horrifying thing for a dog to experience. If you do have a dog or come across a dog that is suffering from the symptoms you've described, what is the best thing to do for that dog and their health? So if a dog seems to be in any distress, is panting heavily, is lying on his side, having vomiting or diarrhea, um, or seems uncomfortable, he will need veterinary care. Sometimes their temperature can continue to go up a bit, and you will, what you see at first is just the tip of the iceberg. So if you're in any doubt, you should seek veterinary care, or at least call a veterinarian to get advice. In the meantime, try to cool the dog down. So bring the dog to a cool area in the shade or indoors. And the most important thing that many people don't know is that you shouldn't use ice water. So don't put your dog into ice water, even though it's obviously the coldest thing we have, because it can make all the blood vessels constrict at once and it can make the problem worse. So what you want to do is just use cool water, um, like a cool bathtub or like a waiting pool of cool water, and use a fan in front of the dog until you're able to get the dog to the vet or until the vet is, is able to come to you. And in terms of uh, how frequently this happens, I, I'm curious about that. If you, I don't know if you have actual numbers or an idea, but when I worked, uh, again, in the media, uh, traditional media, I would do a sort of early summer reminder of don't leave your dog in the car, and then probably at the end of July, another don't leave your dog in the car. But we didn't often hear about all of the cases of this actually happening or the number of times SPCA or Humane Society workers would respond to cases of dogs and cars. Do you have any idea how common an occurrence this kind of behavior on the part of pet owners is? Yeah, so I don't have any hard numbers um, for, for Canada. I can tell you that the BCSPCA where I work, we do receive hundreds of calls for dogs and hot cars um, every summer and also in the spring. And the, the, the late spring is especially bad. So it's good that you remind people 
right in the beginning of the season because that's when I think people forget that the car can get very hot. So if the temperature outside is 60 to 70 Fahrenheit, so about like 16 to 20 degrees um, centigrade, it actually can get so hot inside the car, like it can be about 38 inside the car when it's only about 20 outside. And there are reports of dogs dying in cars when the temperature outside is only 16 to 20. Um, So we do receive hundreds of calls every year. Most veterinary clinics where I've worked and I think, you know, where most of us work, especially emergency clinics, we do get cases throughout the spring and summer. And I think that there are a couple of ways that it happens. Sometimes it's just not at top of mind at the beginning of the year. And I think that's why it's important to remind people. There are also situations where the dog is accidentally left in the car, um, which can be particularly heartbreaking because often it's just a, a complete accident where one person thought that, you know, the other partner got the dog out. Um, and that's, that's also really, really sad. I guess, and this may be going beyond your scope, but I'm going to ask you anyway, um, the conversation to have with people. I mean, we posted a reminder on our Facebook wall the other day about this and said, please, please, please do not leave dogs in hot cars. If you see a dog in a hot car, immediately call police or the SPCA, depending on where you are. And I'd say over half the responses were, I'd break the window and then break the face of the person who came back. <laughs> and I, while I understand the frustration as a dog lover, um, I, it, it, to me, it feels, um, A, very reactionary, but it also seems to show that there's this big sort of, it's a pendulum issue. You're either kind of never leave a dog in the car and if you do, then you're an evil human being, regardless of circumstance, or you simply don't think about it. So how do we try and turn this into a more casual conversation? Um, yeah, yeah, I've I've seen the same thing. Um, people can get really, really agitated about this issue. And I think it's it's good that there's so much awareness, and it's great that there's so much advocacy on the part of the public for dogs who may be left in cars. Um it's hard because there's no, you know, no veterinarian will ever say, oh, there's a safe, you know, there's a safe temperature at which you can leave the dog in the car. Because like I said before, there's so many individual considerations for each dog, um, like their weight and their breed and, and their history that we, we would never say, oh, it's safe to leave, you know, this certain dog in this type of car at this certain temperature. Our recommendation is never to leave dogs in, you know, in the car alone if, if, if there's any chance of it being warm outside. And... Um, I do understand the desire to take matters into your own hands. Of course, you know, veterinarians, we do recommend that you call the police or your local animal protection agency first, ask them for advice. Um, In terms of kind of what's being done, it's very piecemeal across the U.S. and Canada. There are definitely efforts to change laws in different states and provinces um, to anything from making it easier for officers to break into cars to, you know, good Samaritan laws that um, kind of look the other way when a person breaks into a car to laws that make it illegal to leave your pet in the car in the first place and allow for various types of fines and penalties. So it's, there's nothing that is necessarily across the board, um, but I think one across the board recommendation is definitely that private citizens should first call, please call the police or your local animal protection agency. And, um, you know, it is, 
obviously illegal to break into someone else's car. So it's one of those things I think that people have to think about individually, but we, it is not our first recommendation. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see the SBCA avoiding that recommendation right off the top. Um, well, and I think veterinarians as well, like we obviously advocate for animal welfare, but um, there are professionals who, you know, whose job it is to take care of these things. So it is definitely worth making that call. Yes, and I, I think you did raise the very important point too, is that it's it's very piecemeal right now, right across the the continent, let alone you know a single province or community, um, and that's something that really needs to be addressed by our elected officials uh, rather than individuals on the street on a case by case basis. Um, yes, and that's why I think the awareness is so important because hopefully, like so many things that happen on social media, that awareness and that kind of perhaps angry energy can get funneled into something productive and people can work with local lawmakers and animal protection agencies and, you know, try to help make some changes that can enable people to to help these dogs. To learn more, visit bcspca.ca. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at GatesWildlifeControl.com or call 416 750 9453. After a night out with your friends, there are always options for getting home safely. You could call your BFF, take a cab, or maybe you'll grab the last bus. Now there's a smartphone app to help you choose your ride. Find out more at arrivealive.org. Millions of animals are killed for their fur each year in Canada. You can help stop the cruelty. Join the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals today and be the voice for those who can't speak for themselves. Find out more at FurBearerDefenders.com This is Defender Radio. There comes a time in every journalist's life when they write something they never thought they would. For me, it was seal penises. In the last week, I've written two blogs, an editorial column, and a dozen social media posts about seal penises, thanks to the Fur Institute of Canada. That got topped off when Cheryl Fink, a seal hunt expert from the International Fund for Animal Welfare, connected with us for this Defender Radio interview. So, what's what's the background of this seal hunt? I mean, I think that may be a good spot to really begin because a lot of people still aren't aware i think of the the various parts to this whole debate that goes on every year when it comes to the seal hunt in canada yeah i mean i would say the seal hunt pretty much had died in the mid-1980s when the europeans banned the import of white coat seal furs um it continued but at a very very low level and then brian tobin in 1996 um right after the blame is the federal government didn't want to take any blame for mismanaging the cod stocks. So 
they reintroduced the subsidies that introduced the quota. They said that seals were the ones responsible for eating all the cod. And that sort of revived the seal hunts where it is today. Why? I mean, if, if people around the world don't want these products, the, the fur isn't going to Europe anymore. The oils and um, the, the fats and the meats aren't really being sold anywhere. Why is the government pushing so hard to have the fishermen still go out and kill? And I, I think the numbers are, you know, in the hundreds of thousands a year they want killed. Um, why why is this being pushed so hard still? Obviously, I mean, to me, I would say the politicians are still under this delusion that they think that killing seals is politically popular. Um, we went out to Newfoundland this year, and I think just talking to people, people don't realize that the seal hunt isn't really a necessary industry, and that it's on its way out, and that it may never be back to the same large scale that it was. But that message hasn't really trickled through to the politicians yet, and there's still this sort of you know, blah, blah, support the seal hunt, that'll get me elected, that'll get me votes because I'm standing up for these offenders. But, I mean, when you talk to people about it and you look at what's actually happening, they're not supporting these millionaires. All of these millions of dollars in government support that is being given to the seal industry, it's not the fishermen who are benefiting from this at all. Um, they're, they're gaining very little from it. In fact, they're still only getting $30 of help. So most of this money is going to the middleman, the processing companies, or, you know, the government funding is being used to send delegations around the world to try to promote sale products. But the end result and the benefit to actual fishermen in Newfoundland is negligible next to nothing. Now, and that leads us nicely into a subject after over a decade as a journalist and two years with this program, I, I really never thought I'd have to talk about, uh, is seal penises. And that's just the hot button news right now. Um, so what's what's the deal? Why are seal penises on my news feed? Why am I writing about them? Why are we talking about them? The seal penis story actually is one that has come up before back in the 1990s. Um, I guess as there is with other wildlife around the world, there's this myth, this idea that consuming the sexual organs of an animal will give the the individual some sort of sexual prowess or virility as a result of it. Of course, there's no there's no evidence actually happens but it's you know the same sort of mentality that uh you know leads people to, eat, to consume tiger bone or rhino horn or any other exotic wildlife product with this idea that it's going to have some beneficial impact on the consumer but when it comes to seals i think it just shows how much the industry is really struggling right now to find markets we've seen the market for pelts bottom out in recent years which you know, is not surprising. Seal meat um, has never really taken off despite you know, 20 years of government funding and extensive effort to try to market and produce seal meat products that someone would want to buy or eat. <clears throat> it, it really hasn't taken off other than very local consumption in, in Newfoundland. Um, the oil has some market, but you know, not, not enough to sustain the numbers of seals that the government would like to see killed anyways. So what's happened is we came across a report that was commissioned by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans um, looking at gray seals and trying to find uh, ways to develop products from, from gray seals. And I mean, to us, it just shows the level of desperation that this industry is in um, among some of the more ridiculous things in this report, as you note, using the penises as aphrodisiacs and selling them to Asian buyers. Um, it also talks about making a, an energy beverage out of seal penis and testicles and, again, marketing that to Asian markets. 
um, when it comes to the meat, they've got a section here on grinding up the seal carcasses to make a slurry, sort of this mechanically separated meat slurry that would then be used to make hot dogs and meatballs and processed seal meat uh, products that they would be trying to market. Um, the pelts, they talk about trying to use pelts to make things such as welding aprons or weather shields for military applications. I mean, I'm just imagining, you know, people wearing seal skin welding aprons or, or military being sent out with seal skin <laughs> weather shields. I don't know. I mean, to me, it's just, it's, it shows how far we're stretching. Um, making protein powder as a weight loss supplement out of dried seal meat. I mean, these are really fresh ideas. Um, and, I mean, this appears to be a report that they are taking seriously. About the report, that's of course you know it acknowledges right here in the report that none of these schemes would be economically viable on their own, and in fact it would cost the Canadian taxpayer almost 22 million dollars um, if this report were to be implemented and to try to develop products, uh, all these sale products that talks about. So, at 22 million dollars, I mean, I am sure that Canadian taxpayers would rather see 22 million dollars spent on something other than peddling seal penises. Um, it's something I find very funny too is you talk about the slurry and that's actually an episode of The Simpsons, Little Lisa's Slurry when when Mr. Uh, Burns uh, captures all of the junk from the ocean and turns it into a meat product. That is exactly what I thought of. I mean, this is seriously right out of a Simpsons episode with Little Lisa's Slurry scooping up all the marine life and you know turning it into that pink goo. That is pretty much what they are proposing to do with seals here is to, to grind them up, um, make pink goo, and uh, then try, try to market it because seal meat on its own has shown, as you said, after 20 years of marketing and government support to try to market seal meat, it still hasn't taken off. Well, I, I, I want to ask now, if we are to accept the premise that this is sustainable and ethical and all of these other words there throwing at this and hoping stick let's talk about the economics of this just in terms of how many actual jobs or individuals would benefit from these kinds of plans now they're talking as you said over 20 million dollars in subsidies loans what have you how many people would have full-time jobs if that money were spent on this kind of a program. Um, and that's actually covered in the report. Um, it says that they're estimating around 40 to 50 people um, could be employed uh, by this $22 million project. So that's, that's not very many. I, I'm pretty sure a Tim Hortons probably has a greater impact and costs a heck of a lot less money. There's, yeah, there's definitely ways. If, if if the government truly wants to provide support to individuals in rural Atlantic Canada and in communities where jobs are needed, there's much better ways they can be doing it. Yeah, and something else, um, uh, it's been sort of touched upon by everybody, but I don't think anyone's really looked at this yet, is right now governments around the world are spending tens of millions of dollars trying to combat the illegal wildlife trade. So we've got tigers, sharks, rhinos, elephants all of these at-risk or endangered animals being killed for these mystical medicines or uh, aphrodisiacs or uh, other 
you know, maybe at one time culturally significant, but nonetheless unnecessary and scientifically invalid ideals. So wouldn't this kind of make Canada the, uh, the, the, the odd kid out in the circle of let's stop killing animals for this? I think, I think it's rather embarrassing that Canada would even consider trying to perpetuate these myths or this mindset that consuming animal organs or consuming part of a wild animal um, has sort of magical medicinal properties. Um, yeah, as you say, it's, 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 a, it's a mindset that has led to the endangerment of a number of other species. And why would we, why would we possibly want to encourage that for, for our own wildlife? Um, and, and I guess the final question then comes back to what can we do about it? I mean, as far as we know, the governments at, at every level is actually going to consider this program. Um, and, and other than the 40 to 50 Canadians that would be employed by it, I can't imagine there's very many people willing to support $20 million to sell parts of a seal to a dwindling marketplace. So what can we do as residents, as taxpayers, as animal advocates to really try and say, no, this can't happen? Absolutely. I think we, we all need to speak out. It's a federal government issue. So we all need to be contacting our members of parliament, letting them know that we are raised by this plan. We're opposed to this plan. And we don't want to see our taxes being used to peddle seal penises uh, to foreign markets. It's, it's absolutely outrageous. And I think with an election on the horizon, this is something that could potentially be very embarrassing for the government. Um, I'm, I'm surprised that they would even consider something like this going into an election it's so it's so outrageous and so you know as you say it's it's the, the whole philosophy behind it is is it's outrageous it's the only word i can think of right now <laughs> to, to, that they would actually like the harper government supporting selling seal penis potions it is inconceivable to me to learn more about this ridiculous issue, visit ifa.org or check out our blog at furbeardefenders.com. That's all the time we have for this week, folks. I'd like to thank our guests, as well as Brad Gates of AAA Gates Wildlife Control for his ongoing support. Until next time, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.